Today is Friday, September 27th, 2019. Time for episode 94 of the Barnhart Podcast. And two times in a row, we're doing a Financial Friday. What is going on? I am addicted to the music. And um, judging by the feedback that came in over the course of the last few days since the since the last episode went up, I think I am not alone in my, uh, in my addiction to that opening music montage. It is a fun little piece of music. And it, it, it makes me laugh when you say that that's one of the best uh, uh, theme mashups that you've ever heard because it took me, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes to mash those up. Now it took me a lot longer to officially finally get the rights from Fox Media to be able to play that. But <laughs> it's, all, it's all good and well, so we'll use it, darn it. We're uh, legit. We're legit. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and we, the funny thing about recording the last podcast is we have this big list of all these financial topics and economics topics that we're supposed to talk about. And, and we got to exactly uh, carry the four. None of them. We got to none of them. And so <laughs> it was just like, you, we, it's so funny if you guys could hear the warm-up conversations that we had and, you know, d- you know, little bit of messaging going on in the hours before we record any of these things. It's always this, man, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> are we, we going to be, are we going to be able to, to fill, are we going to be able to even get 60 minutes, you know? And it, we end up going for an hour and 45 and don't even touch any of the planned bullet point topics that we had going. So I just said, after we finished the last one, we got to just do another one. At least the major bullet points. I mean, we we definitely, I I thought we had 45 minutes to maybe an hour and 15. And uh, yeah, we blew right through that. And I looked at my list like, okay, so we've got normal length podcast and we haven't really talked about anything yet. So (laughs) the podcast about nothing. (laughs) Speaking of Seinfeld, there there's, there's gotta be a, a, um, (laughs) <laughs> there's there's got to be a, a, a who's that guy we were just talking about who, who stayed at Epstein's Bannon. place Bannon yeah, yeah. Talk, talking about Seinfeld stuff but that's not actually the real topic uh, great feedback from the last podcast as well we, we talked some about the Boeing 737 and I uh, got two very interesting emails one was uh, from a 40-year pilot who flew on the uh, Boeing 757, 767s for about 25 years and was uh, type certified on a whole bunch of other things, plus he was a naval pilot. And then a completely separate email uh, from somebody who, I, I actually, I don't remember if he was a pilot or not, but definitely spoke and said almost, almost point for point all of the same things, that um, not only was the software at issue, and it definitely was at issue, but the software, and this is something I didn't realize, but, but now that I l- learn more about it, it makes sense. The software package that was at fault was a, an attempt to correct a massive mistake they had with the plane. Boeing was calling this a 737, the whole Max series, but it was meant to replace the 757, which had carried, I don't know how many, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but maybe like 180, 190. It was a bigger airplane. And they decided they were going to try to address this by stretching the 737, which means you've got to put bigger wings on it, move the wing further back to to uh, achieve center of gravity. It's heavier, so you have to put bigger engines on it. You put bigger engines, you have to put longer landing gear. It changes the flight characteristics of the thing completely. Um, more powerful engines also, which had interesting side effects for anybody who is used to flying a normal 737. You hit the throttles on one of these things, and it does things you don't expect. So because they, Boeing still called it a 737, 
if I'm understanding this correctly, and y'all pilots correct me if I'm wrong on this, the idea is that even though it's a new model, it's still a 737, so the recertification process would be less. It'd be faster, it'd be cheaper for the airlines to then buy this airplane. So it's more attractive as opposed to calling it a 757neo or a 797 or who knows, seven something. The idea is, is if it was a brand new airframe and marketed as such, the certification process and the expense for airlines buying it would be a lot higher. And anybody who wasn't a pure Boeing customer, like say Southwest Airlines, might say, you know what, we already have all this Airbus stuff and the seven, the the A three twenty, A three twenty one, that pretty much serves our needs. We'll just go with that. So that's what Boeing is trying to head off, and they are at a point now where, uh, like you mentioned before the we started recording, there are articles out there now saying that Boeing may never get permission from anybody, uh, Eurocontrol or or NTSA, NTSC, uh, the American FAA, uh, they may uh-huh. never get permission to fly the Max Airlines again. In which case, that could realistically kill Boeing as a company at at which point what happens they have a lot of interesting and valuable assets that somebody's going to acquire I wonder if McDonnell Douglas could be uh, resurrected from the ashes and take over the production of F-18s and F-15s and all the other military stuff well it's it's a really interesting point and concept because it speaks to this whole business of you've got this company that started out fantastic got super huge, but then became basically decadent and cocky and corrupt, um, thinking thinking in their own minds, hey man, we're Boeing. There's nothing that could happen that could take us down because we're Boeing. Uh, no, excuse me, that's wrong. Even Boeing can go out of business and sh- should, if if they screw up, on an epic level like this, it's conceivable that, yeah, they should go out of business and understand what that means is that, as Super Nerd said, it, it doesn't just go up in smoke. It isn't just, you know, um, annihilated from existence. What would happen is that it would be sold off and that it would essentially become a bunch of smaller companies again and you would it would be that kind it would be a natural good resetting of the paradigm it's clear they got too big that they were that like i said they were cocky and and corrupt and wanted to cut these corners and made this ginormous mistake and they should be they should be made to pay um even up to up to and including the the complete elimination of the Boeing, the Boeing Corporation, at, oh, as in, it now stands. In justice, some of the CEOs, or not CEO, some of the executives who were in charge of making decisions about certifying things and saying we're good to go, and coercing the FAA to to uh, say the plane is ready to go, they should be facing jail time. And something I was going to say is that Boeing has a history of of making bet the company decisions when they went, decided to go forward and build the seven forty seven. Nobody. Had, I mean, it was contrary to common wisdom that carriers would actually want this. And to have an intercontinental four-engine, 450-person aircraft, that was something where it's either going to work or Boeing's out of business. And it mm-hmm. worked spectacularly. Now, in that case, that was a brand-new airframe. It was a bold risk. It was They were shooting for the stars in that case, and they, they succeeded, as opposed to the 737 MAX. 
that wasn't a bold risk. That was just no. plain flat being lazy and greedy all at the same time. And they cut a ton of corners. And I'm sure there are more than a few engineers at Boeing who who raised the red flag and probably got a severance package and uh, an NDA and off away they went. Yep, exactly. And I mean, and also remember the 7-4, that's half a century ago. That is half a century ago that they were doing all that in a certain sense. I mean, good grief, aviation in and of itself was was only at that point what less than 70 years old so i mean this is this is the the very very beginnings of all of this and boeing even in a certain sense a half a century ago was a startup and so yeah it is appropriate for them to take that risk and but like you said the 74 is considered to this day to be the best airframe ever made and so you know it's it's really apples and oranges and it's it's good and healthy and um and like you said it's a manifestation of justice that even a company as big as boeing can and should go out of business completely if they make enough of a mistake in it and it, it i would just encourage everybody to map this onto things such as Facebook, Google, all of these um, Palo Alto companies, Apple, the same thing, where people, you know, have this mindset right now that these companies simply are going to exist forever. They're not going anywhere. There's nothing you could do. I, I cannot tell you how wrong that is. You mean they like Friendster? Friendster will never go away, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could we could sit here and just and geek out and age ourselves naming all of these all of these companies from the 90s and 2000s that were just considered to be the center of everything and they're gone, totally gone. And I tell you what, man, when I think it's already started to a large extent that people are just getting more and more um pissed off about about the Palo Alto companies and are are really seeing and understanding how toxic a Facebook is, all the social media stuff is. One day, it's just going to happen. Something is going to happen and we're going to wake up and there's just base and and Facebook is going to be like MySpace, okay? It's just everybody's going to quit. It'll be basically completely defunct and then, you know, Zuckerberg will be, you know, having his having his nervous breakdown. Well, he's a robot, so I guess robots don't have nervous. Break- well, whatever, you know, Zuckerberg will be imploding. Short circuit. However, short circuit. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, his yeah, his his neural net will will go into a cascading failure cycle. <laughs> Although it's, I think maybe the Facebook people, I don't know which ones are the smart ones there, but uh, they they saw the writing on the wall when Instagram took off. And so they bought Instagram for $1.1 billion. And mm-hmm. at the time, that that seemed insane. Why would you buy this when you already have the dominant social media platform? And now most people are, or the, especially the young kids, they're, they're, they're not on Twitter. They're, well, actually they are on Twitter, but they're, they're fleeing Facebook and they're doing everything on Instagram. And I refuse to say things like Insta and Gram other than in derision, but um, apparently saying the full word Instagram so Mark shows an old fuddy-duddy, but whatever. Get hmm. off my lawn. 
I, I didn't know that. Whatever. Um, it's all it's all awful. It's all horrible. It's all toxic. Stay the hell away from it. I mean, it's just people, I think more and more and more people who aren't just hopelessly addicted to it. And there's a hell of a lot of people who are hopelessly addicted to it. Um, but I think there's more and more people who still are attached to reality and who still live in the real world who are looking around and who are seeing things like um, people's marriages being destroyed with this crap. And and it's, I mean, Facebook is now the number one cited um uh, cause of, of the filing of civil divorces now in the United States. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And I think a lot of people are seeing that. Um, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully someday soon we'll all wake up and, and Facebook will be MySpace. And thank, thank God for that day when it comes, it can't come soon enough. Speaking of, um, divorce filings, I, I have heard on other podcasts that one of the automatic things that divorce lawyers do is when the divorce filings are, are, are um, submitted to the court, they immediately put a, um, a records request into Facebook and not just facebook.com, but all of Facebook's properties. Like I mentioned, they own Instagram. They also own WhatsApp and they own some other things as well. And if you have these apps on your phone as part of records discovery, they're going to get locations. So that, that Facebook app or WhatsApp or Instagram on your phone, it's tracking your location if you let it 24 seven. And yep. so it's not just going to say, Hey, you were talking to Betty Sue from high school. No, it's going to show your GPS location was at Betty Sue's apartment. Yep. Um, that's pretty, pretty cut and dry. Well, and um, Carl Denninger at Market Ticker years and years and years ago was going off and called wh what is happening totally happening right now with this cancel culture. Um, so, you know, what's the example of the thing that happened this, this past week, some guy held up a sign at a football game that said, send me money to buy beer. And, you know, it was a joke. It was a, it was a cute little sign that people hold up at, at football games. And it turns out that this guy wakes up, you know, 48 hours later and has hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting in his, I don't know if it was PayPal or whatever it was that people have, you know, if enough people send somebody five bucks, it adds up. It adds up. Let's just put it that way. Due to so the nature guy, of their activities, it's possible that pay, that uh, PayPal will uh, allow them to keep their account. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> the nature of your activities. Yeah. And so this guy, it, it seems like a decent enough guy says, well, you know, I can't, I can't just pocket this. And so he makes a charitable donation to, I don't know if it's a children's hospital or some, some worthy charity. It seemed, it seemed good enough to me. I mean, it didn't seem like he was giving it to Planned Parenthood or anything. Um, and of course, what does, I don't know who is it, like the Des Moines register or something like that. They go digging through this guy's social media history. I don't know if they got Facebook or Twitter or both or whatever it was. And, you know, Seven years ago, some guy retweets somebody else's, some comedian's joke about something and improper pronouns were, yeah, who, who the hell knows? And, and they're just like going after this guy, destroying him. They want to destroy this man. And Carl Denninger years ago was writing, said, you all, you people are a bunch of absolute imbeciles putting these pictures of you drunk, you know, in a hot tub. I mean, 
it just any of this crap. You are putting all of this crap out there and you don't understand that this is all, all of this is going to be used against you. If any, if you cross anyone at any point, or if just someone decides they want you out of the way at, at work or something like that, all they're going to have to go do is go dig some, some piece of stupid crap uh, up off of social media and you're going to be done. He called the cancel culture years and years and years ago, which I mean, it stands to reason. It's just, it's logical. I mean, these things, a lot of these things, it's like seeing a freight train coming across the Western Kansas Prairie where, you know, I don't know if, if your listeners have never driven I-70 West from Kansas into Colorado. I mean, you know, you can watch your dog run away for three days. It's just flat, treeless, nothing. So you can see things coming and going. No, it's that not flat. That's the point. Because if it was perfectly flat, the curvature of the earth, that things would disappear at about 12 miles. But because as you, on, on the western Kansas Plain, go into Nebraska, or in, into Nebraska, into the Colorado foothills, it's going up. So you don't, yes. you, you have the artificial horizon extended longer than it should. So all you flat earthers can tune out now because I'm disproving your science. The point, <laughs> the point is that you can see things much further away because the, the rising, it looks flat because the, the, the rising uh, um, landscape heading up toward the Rockies is making the horizon look further away. That's your geography yeah, lesson for this one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're going from 1,500 feet to um, 5,280 at, at Denver, right at the bottom of the Rockies. So it's just one big, completely gradual, but quote unquote flat upward slope. And so do you think we still have any flat earthers listening? Well, I guess they troll. Yeah, I get the hate mail. So I guess they are listening. So what's up? Shout out to all the crazy flat earthers out there. There you go. I, that's the that's the one thing I, I really don't get. Of all the different weird conspiracy theories, I could kind of see a little bit of plausibility in a lot of them, but flat earthers, not at all. You don't have to go very high up to see curvature on the earth. If you've ever stood on the seashore and watched a boat go over the horizon and say, where did it go? <laughs> Why did I see the top seven-eighths and then three-quarters and then half and then, come on, be serious. Well, it's some people, I mean, they, they derive meaning from in their lives from that. Um, so there you go. I don't know. I don't understand. And it's a, it's also part of the diabolical disorientation, living your life in a state of mortal sin, which a lot of people do because so many people contracept and fornicate and use pornography and masturbate and so on and so forth. Um, being in a state of mortal sin just progressively dims and dims and dims your intellect. And then if you really, really want to see someone see an intellect get dimmed and just get people to where they can't even see their own hand in front of their face, how about making um, sacrilegious bad sacramental communions where you're receiving our Lord and you're, you're in a state of unrepentant mortal sin and you want to get stupid in a big hurry. Do that. I want to say that, uh, Descartes or somebody during during the time of the French Revolution during the terror was trying Voltaire. to okay it might be Voltaire I think you know where I'm going with this already was mm -hmm. somebody yep. was asking him for advice how to lose their faith 
that yep. they were having pangs, pangs of conscience uh, of trying to apostatize. And he said, commit mortal sin and then go to communion without going to confession. He, and, and he said, you'll be cured of it within a week. Yep. And the guy came back and said, you're absolutely right. It worked like a charm. Yep. And isn't, isn't it interesting, though, talking about this has kind of been a theme, um, you know, on, on barnhart.biz lately. And this whole notion of um, even, even malefactors and the wicked oftentimes proclaim the truth. So you've got Voltaire basically giving Ed a resounding um, affirmation and belief in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, specifically by telling this guy, go make bad sacrilegious sacramental communions. Now think about this. If he didn't believe in the real presence, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even occur to him to say something like that. But in, in doing, in, in telling this man to do that, he's giving this testimony. He's testimony testifying to the truth of our Lord present in in the host and and in the precious blood you know and so it's just real interesting and you know there are all kinds of examples of bergoglio doing this all the time and and i keep reminding people you know look at um pontius pilate declared our lord's kingship when he wrote the the crucifixion placard and he and the jews even came to him and said change it or add the words he said he is king of the jews and pilate said quote scripsy scripsy which means what i've written i have written and refused to change it the the high priest testified to you know our lord as the messiah as the Lamb of God, isn't it better that one man die than the entire nation should perish? It, uh, hello, you know, I mean, it, th things like this just keep happening. It's really interesting how the divine providence works um, and these dynamics about how even the reprobate and the fallen will, they will declare the truth unwittingly, completely unwittingly, but it's there. This is a consistent theme throughout salvation history, human history, the whole nine, is that the truth always outs. It always manifests. It always comes out. It, it, it always is proclaimed. And a lot of times in the ramp up to, the, to any sort of a big triumph or resolution of um, the truth, What's happening is that it's actually the enemies of God. It's the enemies of truth who are unwittingly witnessing to it. And, um, you know, reading, don't, don't get too obsessed. I, I mean, I don't think people should get really um, super obsessed about reading about exorcists and exorcism. I think there's a, there's within reason, it's it's good to know generally about things that are going on. But if it comes kind of a weird fetish or something, that's not healthy either. But in reading, if you do some light reading about exorcists and, and their testimonies, that demons have to, when they're, when they're under, you know, under the authority of Christ and in the name of Christ, they're commanded um, to speak that they oftentimes just they'll blurt out they, because they have to they'll blurt out the truth about a situation and so it's just something something to keep an eye out for and and look at these little things and these little indicators and and how the truth is always always there and always trickling out yep and referring to the uh, betrayal of christ to the sanhedrin 
the price was 30, 30 pieces of silver, which Judas tried to un- unload that and throw it back at the Sanhedrin, and they decided to buy some land with it instead. Uh-huh. Speaking of the question of buying land, we have a question. Uh, I want to get this back around to Financial Friday here. Yeah. Um, if a person needs a decent down payment on a house, that's a weird segue <laughs> going that direction, <laughs> but we're going to go back to financial stuff here. Oh, if man. a person needs a decent down payment on a house and they have a 401k, should they cash that in, take the penalty? And assume they'll either be dead or their 401k will be unavailable in, I don't know, some indeterminate time in the future? It depends on how old you are and how much longer you have to go before you can get unfettered access to the thing. But what I just always keep coming back around to with 401ks is don't don't even start that. Young people out there listening, hi, all of you who emailed in, don't even mess with any of that. Don't put any money anywhere that you don't have access to it. Barnhart axiom, if you can't stand in front of it with an assault rifle and physically defend it, it's not yours and never was. For so many people, the the 401k is just going to get it, it's just, it was a way of tricking you into thinking that you were being paid a higher wage than you actually were. Because if it's taken away, skimmed right off the top, you have no access to it, you can't get at it. Um, it's a function of the theft on the, on the part of the government that they got the tax rate so dang high that they turn around and say, oh, let's create all these little benefits for you. How about tax pre-tax money going to your retirement you can't touch it for until you're 59 and a half oh how about pre-tax money going for health care actually that's a good one because i end up using it uh, how about pre-tax money going for child care unless of course you want to pay your wife because she stays at home with the kids there it's all this crap that accrues because the tax rates are insanely out of proportion and that to <laughs> Then, then you end up with questions like this. Should I cash up my 401k and take the penalty? I think the penalty was the big part here. Yeah, that's what if, it is. If, for- if tax I- rates were normal, if they were proportional, if they were non-odious, <laughs> we wouldn't have this discussion at all. It would be just save up money and buy a, buy a property. You know, well, put money think- in your savings and pay for medical care. Put money in, in savings and pay for your kids at home. I mean... Even more, even more to the point is that there shouldn't be an income tax at all. Income tax is intrinsically wrong. And so that's, that's what you drill all the way back down to. But yeah, exactly. Get the tax rates so that they're so onerous that people are just looking to do absolutely anything to knock a few percentage points off of it. Um, yeah. So what, what is, I was going to say something else. What were we talking about? Oh, 401ks. Uh, oh, oh, if, if, if your employer will even let you out. Now, I did some work on this several years ago and I drafted, in fact, I'll, I'll pull that up and I'll try to repost the sample letter um, that I put up for people asking to liquidate. Here's the deal. Most, most people, their companies, when they ask to liquidate their 401k, they say, I want out, I want to cash the thing in. They are not permitted to do it. Their company comes back and says, no, that's against the rules. Guys, listen, I owned my own corporation, my own brokerage firm. And I, and I, when I first started, my accountants talked me into setting up a 401k thing for myself. And so I was the plan administrator for my own 401k. It is one 
piece of paper that I needed to sign in order to liquidate my 401k. It is completely at the discretion of the plan administrator, which is the company that you work for. Your employer is the plan administrator. It is 100% at their discretion whether or not um, employees are are permitted to liquidate their 401k. So when they come back and tell you, oh no, that's impossible, it's impossible, they are lying to you. They are lying to you. They're saying, it's not that it's impossible, it's that they are freely choosing to not permit you to have access to your money. And they're incentivized in all of this, believe me, 12 ways from Sunday, they're incentivized to keep and to generate as much money flowing into those things. Don't think that they're not making money, that they're not making a cut off the backside of all of that too. Of course they are. So when they come at you and tell you it, that it is not possible for you to liquidate, that they are lying to your face. One very short document, it was about the easiest thing I ever did in terms of all of that kind of payroll and, and all that kind of stuff. One little bitty piece of paper and all I had to do was sign at the bottom and date it and that was it. Fax it back in. Yep, I, I authorize myself as the plan administrator to liquidate my account. There you go. Done. I mean, you're a financial type, so you would have known to look into these rules. I'm thinking about the companies for which I've worked, and most of the time it's somebody in HR who has the collateral duty of being the payroll person. Uh, they might really be qualified to be a payroll person, or they might actually be a, a controller. I don't know if they're a fiduciary per se, but do they really know all the rules, or are they relying on a third-party administrator accounting firm? I, this this is a question for, I would think, for the Dallas tax accountant, but I don't even know if he listens anymore. But um, I, I just get the impression that for most of the companies where I worked, uh, the plan administrator for the company is wearing five other hats, and this is just one of them. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't oh, attribute yeah. malice in this case. I would have, I would attribute cluelessness. Well, let's help people not be clueless. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can you can see that because I remember when I started my 401k, I mean, they just send you, they send you, you know, ring binders and huge books, rule books and everything. I mean, as if I sat down and read any of that, as if anyone sits down and reads any of that. I don't read the three point. paragraphs of a end user license agreement uh, before I click the checkbox. I mean, like I'm going to exactly. read printed documents. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's and and that's all that's all baked into the system. That's all done with full malice aforethought. But I mean, just so you guys know, um, when they tell you you can't, there's no possible way for you to get at that money until you're 59 years old, and there's absolutely no way for you to liquidate it. There, that is simply not true. You totally can. And so I'll I'll find I'll see if I can dig up that sample. Um, I would like to liquidate my 401k letter that I posted years ago. And if anybody's interested, there it is. But just don't give anybody money, your money that you don't have access to as if it's just, it's insane. <laughs> it makes me, it makes me um, remember being a little kid, a little teeny tiny kid and watching when they showed the, the old fifties and sixties sitcoms during the day on the independent television station on old channel 41 in Kansas city, that watching the, the Beverly Hillbillies 
And, you know, the the running joke on the Beverly Hillbillies is that Jed and Granny and Jethro and Ellie Mae would go over to the bank and go into Mr. Drysdale's office and say, well, we'd like our $10 million now. We'll take it in cash. And they couldn't ever quite understand why it was that Mr. Drysdale and Miss Jane couldn't just bring them out bags of money and hand it to them. Um, and so, I mean, it just it makes me chuckle to look back and, and, and remember that, but, um, it's, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, except on a, on a massive, massive multi-trillion dollar level now with all of these, all of these retirement accounts and just, well, well, we don't actually have your money. You understand? Well, where in the hell is it? Uh, why well, I get these statements. I get these statements every quarter. There it is. I, I see this stuff being withdrawn from my paycheck. And the truth of the matter is the whole thing was, was essentially set up from the beginning as a way to deprive the, the laborer of his just wage, which is one of the sins that cries out to heaven for, for God's vengeance. Um, just, I'm going to tell you that I'm paying you $100,000 a year, but I'm going to skim. I don't even remember. What's the, what's the percentage that people put? Like 5 5% goes into... 401k account? I can't even remember. I should probably hey, I, look into this because it's the the pattern for the last few years has been that if you do not explicitly opt out of it, they make contributions, which also makes me think that I need to contact previous employers and say, where did my money go? I need to consolidate all this stuff. Yeah, and absolutely. By the way, if you're a financial person and you know the answer to that question, people in the software development world, we don't stay in the same job for 20 years. Um, so I imagine I'm not the only person who scratches my head and says, where are all of my 401k accounts? Because I don't even, I, I don't remember <laughs> where they all are. Um, that's going to be a fun one to figure out at some point. I assume someplace it can all be tracked down by a social security number, but I don't know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That the call is going out to, um, to the listenership there. Cause I, I can't help you. I have no idea. Uh, yeah. Fun stuff. Yep. Just okay. don't do it. Don't let don't let someone trick you into paying you five percent less or whatever it is than than your negotiated wage. Well, if if you don't have access to that money and if you're young enough that it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that like the the person who emailed in, what was the date that they used? 2047 or something like that. <sighs> I mean, Something sufficiently in, in, in the future to make me think that this person is um, pretty young still. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to have access to this until, you know, it's almost a foregone conclusion that <laughs> we're all going to be <laughs> sitting around campfires <laughs> eating roasted rat or something like that. I, I don't think so. I, I think I'll just go ahead and, and I'll take care of my own money, thanks. And I'll save it myself, thanks. And yeah, put a down payment on on a house, even though... Don't, I mean, again, it's it's all contingent upon how old a person is, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I'm just so so loath to advise people to to go into debt. If you do, and we talked we talked about this, I'll just say it. Remember the maximum mortgage term up until after World War II, and the infiltration of the communists and and the heirs of Russia. 
Seven years, baby. Biblical model, biblical jubilee model. Seven years was the maximum term you could get a home mortgage for in the United States of America. So, you know, just stop and think for a second. Hmm, why was that? Hmm, maybe because, you know, 30 year mortgages and not building any equity and never owning anything, never owning anything for your entire life is not good. So think long and hard. Put a bookmark in the word equity. We've got to get back to that. But you mentioned something earlier uh, about uh, about watching the Beverly Hillbillies and uh, the whole topic of banking. Is it possible that that's kind of what uh, landed in your mind and made you think about getting into finance? Where's the money? No, no. I did it because when I was a when I was a little bitty kid, um, my father traded futures to the to the point that there was even a quote machine in our living room that had an FM antenna that was out on the porch or something like that. And I the best Christmas present I got every year was from the commodity broker. And so I was always kind of interested in it. And then when I actually learned what it was, um, I said, Well, that's something that I'll be I'll be in agriculture um and the and honest to goodness I knew immediately going in even as a teenager that the commodity the the commodity futures industry in total was rife with corruption and I thought you know being young and naive and altruistic although I I did make a pretty good go of it um I thought well you know there People, especially you know, within my specialty of, of cattle and grain, these are good people, and they need to have um, an alternative. They need to have a broker that they can go to and look to, who isn't just a complete sleaze bag. And a lot of them are. I mean, you know, there's used car salesmen, and then below that is commodity brokers. Basically, that's the reputation, and it's a well-earned reputation. There's so much corruption, and just sleaze. Um, and I think that's largely a function of the fact that, um, you can be just massively leveraged. Um, you can put on a speculative position in the futures markets with only 3% of the contract value down. So the leverage is just enormous. And I think that it's probably that leverage that attracted, attracted bad sorts and low character sorts. But I looked at this and said, well, you know, I could be, I could be a commercial hedge broker, do cattle and grain, you know, only deal or almost entirely only deal with people who actually own the physical cattle and the physical grain. So they aren't speculating. They're doing the opposite of speculating. They're laying off risk and just, you know, people would know that here's an alternative and here's this Ann Barnhart chick and she's, she has low commission rates. She pays interest on the free cash balances in your account. She's a decent human being. She's not going to, she's not going to screw you over. And, I, that's kind of how I built my business. And that's why I got into it. I said, there, there's a market niche for me. It's really interesting. It's a very, um, you know, every day is a new day. It's, it's, it's a very dynamic, never a boring day. I could do that. I could absolutely do that. And that's, that's why I got into it. Cool. I actually did not know that story, and I was saying it tongue in cheek because I was trying to set up a segue into uh, something that somebody had said about um, the last podcast. Uh, somebody tweeted and said, "Although you said there's not much to the story, I'd like to hear how uh, you and Ann met." And 
I was trying to set up a, a corny segue, but that's actually pretty pretty cool. The the idea that you got into it because your dad was into commodities. It makes me think of the joke that I used to say that when people said, why did you join the military? And I said, because I had a lack of alternative male role models. Both my brothers and my dad were in the military. So I was in the military for six months before it occurred to me. I could have done something else. Not that it was bad, but uh, it, you, you tend to have a, an inordinate amount of influence based on the people around you and what they do. So. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that that was the dynamic for me. I always knew from the time I was a very young kid that I could do absolutely anything I wanted to do. It was just the world was my oyster. Just pick pick what you're interested in. And, you know, when I was a little kid, I, I would talk about just because it, they were the quintessential high earning careers was doctor and lawyer. And it took me about five minutes. I mean, literally, when I'm in like the third grade, I've figured out that there's no way in hell that I'm having anything to do with being a lawyer. Um, and then it was, you, you know, you talked about medicine, but then uh, yeah, that it just really didn't interest me. And so, you know, when it was time and for me, when it was time for me to start thinking about seriously what I was going to do and get on a career track, for me, that process started when I was probably 11 or 12 years old, just interiorly. I was always cognizant of the fact that, um, well, you know, being poor, you just, you want to stop being poor as quickly as possible. So the whole notion in my mind, and I was, I was heavily accelerated in school. So I was, I was a sophomore in high school when I was 13. So, you know, as, as someone recently said this past week, life comes at you fast. And so life, life was coming at me fast. And I was very much cognizant of the fact that if you have a plan and you and you start university or college or whatever whatever path you take and you you know what direction you're going and you don't just stumble into in my case you know K-State you don't just stagger into K-State and just be a non-declared major or i don't know what are some of the other weird non <laughs> absolutely no good um, general peak. education and general, physical education. Yeah, yeah there's uh, communications. I mean, what the hell is that? Psychology. I mean, what what is this? No, um, uh, my intention was uh, wherever I go to university, the reason I'm going to be there is to acquire information, skill set, whatever, directly pointing toward the career that I intend to have for my entire adult life, presumably. It was none of this, well, I gotta figure it out. No, well, you're you're an intelligent, you're an intelligent girl. You need to start figuring this out now. What are you good at? Um, what do you enjoy? And also, truth be told, I'm not gonna lie, what 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 can you make money at? Because again, and I'm sure there are lots of you out there listening who um, who can completely empathize with this because the American culture is, in fact, this massively upward, up, upwardly mobile culture. Um, you can be born poor and and just say, I am not going to stay this way. And this this situation is going to change as quickly as humanly possible. And I, I don't know. I, I don't think that it, I don't think that was necessarily morally wrong of me um, because I did do something that I liked. I did it well and with integrity. And um, 
and yeah, I, I just didn't want to be poor anymore. So, so that's how it all happened. Well, and, and if you didn't cheat anyone, what's where, where is the possible moral uh, downside to that? Um, what I look back at it as I look back at it now, in terms of futures, it, I did have some speculative clients, and I I do worry about things like naked shorting. I mean, I would have speculators that would naked short, you know, for a sh- for a short term play you know, any number of things as, as, you know, cattle grain, um, metals, currencies, the S and P, whatever. Um, Refresh my memory. What exactly is naked shorting? Selling something, um, selling a futures contract for something that you don't physically own. So you, you don't, you don't have it in the first place, but you've taken a short position. So, you know, a speculator calls me and says, and I think the gold market or the silver market is going to pull back, um, sell 10 contracts of December silver at the market. Well, he doesn't have, he obviously doesn't have any silver. So this isn't hedging at all. He's making a purely speculative bet that sometime within the, the very short term that the silver market is going to go down and not up. And so that's why he has sold silver futures contracts, pure speculation. So things like that, I look back and I don't know, but I, is that and like, I think maybe. Is, is that like a put option where, if you don't execute on it, all you're out is whatever you paid for the the, con- oh, no. the, the potential contract. Oh no 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 no! You are you are short. You are taking you are taking a full blown position in the market. You are you are pretending, in essence, pretending on paper that you actually own something. You are selling a forward delivery contract on that thing, which you actually do not own. And the way that this all works mathematically, and again, almost nobody delivers on anything on any of these contracts, you unwind them. So the way you, if you, if you sell something, if you short a market, the way you get out of that contract is you just at some point in the future, you buy back, you buy five December future silver contract and December silver futures contracts. And the the five that you shorted two weeks ago are then offset and the position is closed out by the five that you buy, buy back today to close the position. Oh no, but you are fully 100% exposed to the market. Not, not only are you fully exposed to the market, but you've only had to put like 3% of the actual contract value down in order to control and short those five contracts. No, it's not. It's not put options at all. It's it's full blown naked shorting. And so I I have qualms about that. But if somebody has the money and they're willing to accept the risk, is yes. there any moral problem to it? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it, it's an interesting question about naked shorting. Um, is it is it built upon a premise of a lie? It's, you know selling a forward delivery contract on something that you don't have. Uh, well, you could buy it. Um, you could go into the cash silver market and buy it if you needed to make delivery. But I mean, it's, it is, it's a very, it's a nuanced question. I would be interested to see what Thomas Aquinas would say about that because I don't think naked shorting, I don't think, 
I'm not sure if naked shorting existed back in the 13th century when when Thomas was was here on Earth. Um, I don't know. I don't think I don't think there was. It's a it's 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 a pretty sophisticated thing, and you have to have. And this is why I, I folded my my brokerage firm because when you're when you have markets that are operating like this, you have to have a rock solid foundation and the rule of law, and equal protection and 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 rights of redress and so on and so forth. And if that all goes out the window, which is what the MF Global thing did, it just threw all of that out the window. Um, you you can't even begin to hope to have these markets have any integrity. And I've um, there's a listener slash reader out there that is a that is trading. I don't know if he's trading currencies or what he's trading or equities or something. I mean, he's a trader, and um, you're just like this is. He, I got an email from him, and he just said these these markets are untradeable. Oh, he's talking about the bond markets, the U.S. paper markets, which are the biggest, most liquid futures contracts in the world are U.S. Treasury paper. Just massive, enormous markets. And this guy sends me an email and says, these markets are getting to be untradeable. These algorithms, there's just, you can't do anything. The the algorithms are just, they're running stops and, and long story short, you've got the most liquid markets in the world, massive volume, and you can't place a market order. You can't, but you can't put in a stop loss order because it, the second you put in a stop loss order, the algorithms will just will like in five milliseconds run the market down, hit your stop, kick you out, and then the market goes right back up. And again, this happens within five milliseconds. There's nothing you can do. There's absolutely nothing you could do. And this goes back to my my whole rant that after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart and whatever happens, happens, this algorithm crap and trading these markets electronically, it has to stop. We have to go back to open outcry, human being to human being, physically standing in a pit, screaming at each other. That is a market that has a modicum of integrity. These computer markets, I mean, and I was tricked when they first started too. Because I thought, hey, this is going to increase. This is going to increase volume. Increase volume means in- increase liquidity. It's going to be better. You're going to get better fills on your market orders. It's, you know, and then it just turned into this absolute algorithm monstrosity, such that you, it's just hopeless. Individual people, human beings, are basically. It's basically impossible for individual humans to trade to trade the markets anymore because you're going up against computers and it's, it's simply not possible. And it's so hardcore. And we're talking about amounts of time that are so small that, that big algorithm trading outfits will are in competition to buy real estate as close as they can get physically as close as they can get to where the servers for the exchanges are and now we're talking about things and signals that are moving at the speed of light over fiber right we're talking about people trying to get um advantages over each other in terms measured at the distances at the speed of light. And we're talking about if you can get to where you are one mile closer to where the exchange servers are. No, they they measure it in centimeters of fiber optics to the trading computers. 
centimeters. Oh, I didn't even realize it was that bad. It, and not so, only not only that, but the and I know about this the the most expensive data center um, colos you can you can buy in the world are the ones that are, are literally measured down to the centimeter and how how many how how far in fiber it is to the stock uh, stock exchange computers. Not only are those those server locations the most expensive. But the people who write the software, or I should say the software that's written for this, is the most optimal. I mean, this is, you call me a super nerd. This is way beyond my pay grade. People are writing this stuff almost in assembly code to go literally as fast as possible. And assembly is the last language where you can make uh, available uh, for, where you can literally make the hardware smoke. They, if you want absolute maximum performance out of, out of a system, you're going to write it in assembly. Next best is, is to write it in C. Next best is... I don't know, but past that it, it degrades quickly. Uh, C plus plus has has some advantages, but in terms of the these algorithms and and real time trading with the markets, you do nothing slower than C plus plus. And these guys are being paid 500k up at that point to be to be writing that. And it's not just because they know C plus plus really well; they also know finance. You've mm-hmm. got to to be able to to write these real time trading systems. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's hardcore stuff, and it is. <laughs> it is a it is a small club and folks you are not in it you are not in it uh, this is this is this thing is designed to basically just hoover money into the hands of a relatively minuscule uh group of people and group of of banks and companies so i can't I can't recommend, obviously. I mean, I closed my own firm. I can't recommend that anybody trade futures. I get emails not infrequently from people saying, well, who do you recommend? I don't recommend anything. I don't recommend that you participate in these markets at all. At all. There's no strategy that works. You're, you're, you're going up against computers and you will be, you will just be bled. You will be bled dry. And they, and who knows, they might steal all your money. Like they stole all the MF global people's money. You you just might wake up one day and your $120,000 account balance might read zero. Um, why, why would you go diving back into that? And it's the same thing. It's kind of the same idea circling back to social media. We know how corrupt Palo Alto is. We know what Zuckerberg is. We know that, you know, Twitter has been, I, I quit Twitter five years ago, five years ago. I had like 8,600 followers and I got, I saw the first indications that they were shadow banning people and doing all this crap and censoring people for, for any, um, any speech that was, anywhere to the right of, you know, Nancy Pelosi. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not participating in this. Why, why, if you know that a paradigm is completely corrupt, why do you continue to participate in it? That's my question. I mean, I, I I just don't get it. Why would you keep the Twitter account? Why would you keep the Facebook page if you know these people, what they are, what they're doing, and where their money is going, and what they're funding, and what they're funding is nothing short short of satanic. 
absolutely satanic. And it's coming to light that a lot of this crap is all tied up with um, the goings on in the Vatican too, that there was a, a concerted, we've, we've known about this for years, this whole notion that Podesta and Clinton and all of these people wanted to organize and execute a quote unquote Catholic springtime. Who in the hell do you think is paying for all this and subsidizing all of this? Yeah, George Soros, but it's not Soros alone. And he's becoming less and less of a player. And Palo Alto and all those people are becoming more and more and more. And they're driving money to fund all of this crap that's going on. And so these tentacles are all just completely intertwined with each other. Why? If you know something or someone is corrupt... Again, this is, I could cite examples of this till the cows come home, Steve Bannon being one of them. If you know someone or something is wildly corrupt, why in the world would you continue to associate with them? Okay, now I'm taught when I'm talking about social media and stuff, I mean, that's that's not on a personal level. You're not personally associating with Zuckerberg, but you're associating with him in the sense that you're doing business with his business. How much more severe is this dynamic when we continue, when we find out that people are moral degenerates, we find out that people are criminals, and we say, well, you know, you got to be loyal to your friends, and this person is really useful to the cause, and blah, blah, blah. And it, people do not learn the lesson. They're still not learning the lesson. These bad associations will come back to bite you in the butt every time, whether it's Facebook coming back and, you know, you posted some, some joke that, that didn't use the proper pronouns or something. I'm telling you, at some point, that is going to be used against you. Associations with bad outfits, bad companies, bad paradigms, and then so much more associations with bad people. Well, nothing's happened so far. Well, what happens when it does? What happens when your association with bad person X, bad person Y, bad person Z comes to light publicly and then you're just destroyed? I fell in, when I first went to Rome, I fell in with a group of people that turned out to be bad, where it was a clique and there's a bunch of sodomites at the center of it. And it was bad. And I, you know, as soon as I found out what the situation was, I'm done. Okay. See ya. I'm going to, I'll be over here praying. Y'all do what you're going to do. Um, and, um, somebody, a, and in fact, a, a rather moderately well-known priest personality on the internet said to me, I'm really glad that you have gotten, seen the light and gotten yourself extracted from that because if, if, people who were your enemies had found out about these associations and they knew who these people were, that they're sodomites or whatever, that could have been used against you to destroy your apostolate. And that was his word, not mine. I don't, I do never, I never think of Barnhart.biz or any of this as an apostolate. I think that that's, I think that we're way beneath apostolate, but, but the point was made. 
it is an absolutely wonderful thing that you've gotten the hell away from those people and publicly denounced them because that association could have been used against you to completely destroy your apostolate. It was only because there was, I'm convinced there was just a hedge of protection around me that it, that didn't happen. And so now thanks be to God, I am publicly on the record as, as having 100% denounced and, you know, my fault for, for not heeding red flags and, and also let it also be said, heed your gaydar folks. Um, don't don't make excuses for men that act like fags. If men, a man that acts like a fag is ninety nine point nine nine percent probably a fag. Just honor that. Honor that. So, well, that was a that was a tangent. Yeah, something that um, <laughs> I forgot where exactly we we took off onto that tangent, but I was trying to set it up to get back to uh, the question of how how it was that uh, Ann and I ever connected. And, oh, yeah. and, uh, like I said, it, it's not that exciting of a story. It, it's, uh, a, a priest actually referred me to, uh, a podcast you did with the financial sense guys, uh, after you had done your going Galt letter and closed down the, the brokerage. Oh and I yeah. Thought, this is pretty cool. I'm, I'm going to find out more about, about this person, found your website and was immediately annoyed by the fact that the barnhart.biz website, you can't permanent permanently, or you can't do uh, direct links to any of the blog posts. It scrolls off the main page very quickly. So me being a nerd, I, I, I flip the, the web browser over to the source code view and it's like, Oh yeah, I can, I can figure out how to parse all this. So I, I wrote a, a PHP script to uh, go out and check the website on, I don't know, every 24 hours or something like that, look for new um, postings and then copy them to a local database and then gave them all unique links. And that's how I read the read your website. And I sent you an email about this and saying, hey, is it okay if I do this and share it with other people? And you basically just, well, you didn't do an emoji, but, but I don't know why I'm thinking that you sent back a thumbs up emoji, but it was basically that. Uh, I was like, yeah, whatever you want to do. And, yeah. and uh, so then when you decided that you wanted to completely close down that website and transition uh, to something else, you contacted me because I had demonstrated some modicum of being able to program and uh, said, can you set up my website uh, off of that and, and get everything transferred over? So I talked to your programmer and got a dump of the uh, database and, and parsed through it and moved it all over to WordPress. And then uh, a couple of years ago, you because I had that background with helping you with your website, you sent me an email saying, hey, do you know anything about doing podcasts? <laughs> so that's yeah. how this all started is, is I, I had I demonstrated a little bit of competency in, in one point and um, uh, have been able to pull it off ever since. Yay! Which and people who are programmers would recognize, yeah, that's being a programmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. And, and I will publicly say this because you used to have a full archive. I mean, of my... How far back did that thing go? Like 2003? All the way back to where you said, how do you get the pizza delivered? How do you get the uh, Nebraska graduate off your porch? You pay for the pizza? Yeah. That's <laughs> it goes early, back that early far. 2000s. Yep. Early 2000s. So all those archives, you have those. They exist somewhere. And there used to be there used to be a website that with the name of which I will not say, but um, that I could go to and I could go back. And I actually, it would be good for me to have access to that stuff because people are asking specifically for some of the um, intro to Catholicism apologetics pieces that I wrote before 2013 about, you know, the real presence and et cetera, et cetera, because 
um, everybody agrees that the next little book that I put together and that my typesetter and I get made should be just Catholic apologetics, hand this to somebody who's either looking at converting or reverting. And someone sent in an email that said, when you put this book together, um, since it's just that, don't don't say anything about Bergoglio. Because, it, I mean, you just don't even have to go there. It shouldn't be anything about that. It should just be about, you know, the, you know, Catholicism, the fundamentals of Catholicism and explaining and the way that I explain things, you know, things like the real presence and the sacrifice of the mass and, and the incarnation and the immaculate conception and da, 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 and all that stuff. And, you know, you don't, you don't need to be dragging Bergoglio into any of that at all. So that I commit to that. That's what it'll be. It'll be something that you could just hand to anybody and we won't even go into, into Bergoglio. So yeah, that's, that'll be the next one, but I'd like to have access to my deep, deep, deep archives. If you can find those somewhere. I, I know where there's at least two or three copies on my network drive and Dropbox and Apple drive. And I've got at least two or three copies. Wow. Uh, I just need okay. to go. I just, well, it's, it's paranoia. You, if you don't have three copies, you have zero. But, um, <laughs> But it, it's, I still got the SQL server dumps and all that good stuff. So I can go back through and reparse it from scratch if I have to. But I think I've got, I'm pretty sure I've got the WordPress back up as well. Um, I'll have to go find that and put it together. I, I know you asked for it uh, a few weeks back. I just need to find time to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no rush, no rush. We got all the time in the world or, well. No, actually, we don't, but <laughs> no rush. It's okay. <laughs> well, it's going to be uh, October Synod here before too much longer, so you'll have your hands full with that, and and um, and maybe I'll do it then. While, while you're not looking, I'll put your archive back up. Um, back to financial stuff. Uh, we talked about equity, and that there's that equity is a made-up concept, and got a, a con- I, got a, I got a message from somebody saying that while I agree in principle with the comment that equity doesn't exist until you sell something, there is at least one scenario where equity matters a lot, crossing over the 20% equity mark, mark on your mortgage so you can stop paying PMI. And this came from somebody who is about somewhere between 19 and 20% currently, so this is a very timely, relevant thing. Oh, okay. True. Okay. Good point. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know what PMI is, it's mortgage insurance, which if you have less than 20% equity, it's mandatory for many, if not most loans now that you have to be carrying mortgage insurance. So yeah, and uh, bringing that up, um, if you're close, one thing you can do, one thing I always did, I think I've mentioned this before, on all mortgages that I ever carried, um, you know, rental properties, my office, whatever, every mortgage, I would always set it up that I would have a $100 per week um, bonus principal payment. And if you think about that, what that means is that if you do that, then you are throwing $5,200 per year of pure principal pay down at your mortgage, whatever it is. And guys, and I know it doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot, maybe. It makes a massive difference into the the speed, the amortization, how that all works. You are, I mean, for most people, what's most people's average mortgage payment? We'll call it 2000. Okay. So that's like two and a half extra mortgage payments per year and it's all principal pay down 
oh my gosh, it makes a huge, huge difference. And I mean, if you're one of those people who is close and you want to get over that, that PMI hump of 20%, that's a way to do it, man. If you can, if you can tighten the belt for a hundred bucks a week, um, it's going to make a huge difference to your mortgage. So now, do you pay that every week or do you just uh, chuck on another $420 a month? Uh, the way I would, I would set everything, all my bills, all my mortgages, everything were set up as um, direct, direct withdrawal. And so it was set up to, it would, it happened automatically. It was a direct withdrawal every week. Okay. So you, you made weekly mortgage payments. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, yep. Now, okay, that gets into a slightly different thing, talking about weekly or setting up for automatic withdrawal. I am not a fan of giving anybody, and I'm talking about companies, the ability to auto-debit any account. I'll set it up the other way around where I'll push the money on a weekly or monthly basis to uh, accounts, and that's the way my, my mortgage is set up currently is I, 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 don't, I don't even have to think about it. 26th of every month, it's pushing X amount over to the mortgage company. And yes, it's above the minimum required payment. But I do not like the idea of the mortgage company, if, if they get a data breach or some uh, system admin decides to go rogue, saying, hey, I'm going to debit this guy's account for the maximum amount in the account. Can't do it because I never gave them permission to do it. I send the money to you. You don't pull it out of my account. That's just my yeah. personal thing. Uh, I know. Because not all banks will make you whole if somebody decides to exploit um, being able to pull money via ACH. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I haven't had any of those concerns now for six going on seven years. So, um, and things have changed and my outlook on all those things have certainly changed. So, yeah, I wouldn't blame a person if they didn't want to do something like that. But yeah, I mean, you could do like Super Nerd said, it doesn't have to be $100 per week every seven days. You can do it as 400 a month or whatever. Yeah. Just throw, throw money at at principal pay down if you have a mortgage. Get after it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, another question. Does Anne have any advice for a family in which both parents have to work to stay financially afloat to get out um, to get out of that situation and, and into a more biblical way of life? This is actually an interesting question um, because it's not the whole notion of women having um a, a, a quote unquote job, um, in addition to being a wife and mother is not unheard of at all. Um, one of the things, you know, back in, in the day, back in Europe that I learned about that women used to do in order to make money on the side, in order to supplement the household income was lace making. Um, it was not uncommon for ladies to learn to learn the craft of lace making, and they would just work on that at home for however long, an hour, hour and a half, two hours, probably not more than two hours a day. And that was their income supplement. My advice now to women is that if you have to do something- Podcast? I mean, it's- well, I mean, do do. There's so much you can do online. There's so much work from home. Um, there's so much that you can do over the internet that it seems to me that you know th in these days it's the easiest conceivably for women to work from home. Um, 
So, you know, the kids, the kids go down for their nap and, and you go do two hours of work in, in front of a computer somewhere. There's all kinds of options and things that can be done. And, you know, I know people who have been hired to be basically secretaries, you know, answering emails and doing calendar organization and logistical stuff that up until not too terribly long ago, that would have been an office job. No question. And now it's all like, no, no, just do this all from home. Do it from home. We don't want to, we don't want to pay for office space. We don't want to do this. I mean, your own home Wi-Fi internet connection is more than good enough to be sending a bunch of emails and doing a bunch of calendar stuff. I mean, come on, you, you don't need to be going to offices so much anymore. And then you've got, you know, messaging and you've got um, obviously all the the audio stuff that's basically now free. You can talk to anyone anywhere in the world basically for no cost. Um, work from home. Just work from home. That's my advice to you. Um, and there's lots of options. And I don't think it's immoral. In terms of being biblical, it sounds a lot like the exhortation or the example given in Proverbs 31. That should the the that's the exhortation the the glory of a of a good wife is yeah, that the, the valiant woman yeah absolutely that yeah it has lots of um almost mercantile references about <laughs> what what is she doing she's weaving and she's making things and making gar yeah absolutely she has considered a field and bought it with the fruit and, and with the fruit of her hands she has planted a vineyard um and uh, let's see yeah I'm that's sixteen and seventeen there. Mm -hmm. So the way the way you attack this as a woman is that you just have in your mind this, this is a fact, this is the base premise. I want to get a job and I want to be doing some work, but it has to be home-based. It has to be work from home. And just don't even think about anything else. Well, if I would go do this, well, if I would go get a job doing that, nope, you just set that boundary. Period, full stop. I'm not doing anything outside the house, but what I am going to do is explore all these various and sundry ways that I can make money working from home, almost certainly online. Um, but hey, if you do have, if you are able to make clothes or or anything like that. Yeah, by by all means, if you if you can do something like that, by all means. But for for the vast majority of people right now in this world, as it stands right now, we're we're mostly talking about online stuff. So just set that boundary, and just anything else is unthinkable. It is unthinkable to work outside the home. I think who is it? Is it Father Ripperger who's recently said that? Um, for a mother to work outside the home is, I don't know if he said it was mortally sinful or I, I can't remember. And I don't want to put it, I don't want to attribute it to Father Ripperger if it's not Father Ripperger. I Some, think it somebody, was Father Ripperger yeah. and I think he might've actually said that. And it was one of those things where, you know, I'm not going to question or disparage Father Ripperger because he's going to cite Aquinas and Augustine until you fall asleep. Um, no, literally, he, he's, he can cite it all from memory. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of citations he can whip off off the top of his head. But... It, it's one of these things like there's got to be some context here that I'm missing. Uh, it's like any soundbite or tweet or, or yeah. headline. It's like, okay, it's sensational, but what's the full story here? Yeah. Usually there's more to it that, that isn't explained. And with regard to having a, a work from home 
type job or, or an internet based job, I would say be careful of something where you need to be on social media promoting it. If it's not something mm. that can promote itself, I mean that it, it's probably going to be something where, where you're doing an actual, um, you know, either, either piecework or, or some kind of, um, I'm not, I'm not even sure my, my mind immediately goes to doing contract programming, but there's copywriting there. There's, there's, uh, uh, doing, um, Copywriting is creating the copy. Then there's proofreading it and editing it. Copy editing, copy editing. Copy editing, yes. Yeah. Um, If you've got the voice for it, and and which I've got the voice for blogging, but if you've got the voice for it, um, (laughs) then uh, narrating audiobooks. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, granted, that does require a technical setup. You're not going to be able to become a an audible um, voice talent if you just are trying to do this in in your kitchen while the kids are running around. They're going to they're going to reject that audio every single time. It's got yeah. to be in, in a, a, a clean audio setting, but it's not as hard to do that as you might think. No. Uh, there, there, there are all kinds of things. And, and people like me will buy those books because I don't like to read books, whether it's digital or print. I, I'm going to listen to it in, in my ears at two, two times speed. And you know, unless it's Ben Shapiro, it's one and a half. But um, yeah, I, I, I listen to audiobooks. That's the best way for me to take in content. So th- there's all kinds of options. In fact, that'd be a great idea if, if I'm if you're screaming at your iPod or phone or whatever it is you're listening to this on, and saying you didn't mention this. Hey, email at Barnhart. No, it's podcast at Barnhart podcast, biz. Yeah. Um, and hey, this would be great to talk about ideas for working from home. For especially for ladies, for for mommies to work yes, from home. Yes, for moms. You betcha. Yep. Yep. Super cool. All right. Well, I think we. We can check that one off the list, off the bullet points. Do we have anything else? Um, let's see. Uh, Anne is a former capitalist and advisor to capitalists. She's now a strong traditional Catholic. I'd love to hear her talk about what is the most correct or defensible Catholic economic philosophy, assuming there is one. <sighs> <laughs> Which leads into distributism, I think. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think what what that I think that's a sideways tangential way of getting to what do you think about distributism? And I, you know, the more I learn, the less of a fan I am. I think it's built on pie in the sky assumptions. And the big one being, as I understand it, that um, distributists think that everyone should be, should own their own means of production. And I'm sorry, but that is, that is absolutely wrong. Um, that is, any, it, it seems to me that anybody who would propose that has never actually dealt with people or been an employer or or anything like that. I mean, would would that it were? Would that it were? But um, it's just it's simply not possible. I, and you know, getting into deliciously politically incorrect things, um, we need to talk about the IQ bell curve. And if you just you know draw a bell curve and look at it and realize that if you if you bisect the thing right down the middle, okay, right there at the top of the bell curve, that is the IQ of 100. That is average, average IQ, 100 IQ. Everything to the right of that is people, is the proportion of the population that has an IQ over 100, which is exactly half by mathematical definition. To the left is the proportion of the population that has an IQ under 100. And so 
you when you deal with people and you get out in the world, you quickly realize that there's, you know, there's all of these people running around who are not rocking a 120 IQ. In fact, they're rocking something in the 80s. And some of them are even lower than that. Um, I'm not sure what the line of actual functional mental retardation is. I think it's probably, I think it's in the 70s, but I'm not sure. But there's a hell of a lot of people running around who have IQs in the, in, let's say the low 80s. It is a cruelty. It is a cruelty to shoulder those people with responsibility that they simply do not have the ability to handle. And one of the great wonders and mercies of, you know, just human life and human dynamics and societal societal existence is that there are all of these jobs and positions whereby what an employer needs is for a person to show up in the morning and the employer says, here is all of the equipment that you are going to need and this is the task that I want you to do today. And then the person takes that equipment goes and does the task and then comes back. And when they're done, they're done. And they come back the next day and it's exactly the same thing. Here's what I want you to do today. Here's the equipment that you need to do it. Go do it. But and wait, that, wouldn't the owner or wouldn't the employee own their means of production because it's their own body at this point and their ability to pick up tools and use them? But that what distributism is saying is that let's say someone is doing, you know, menial janitorial work. They need to own all of that equipment. They need to oh they need to own the floor waxing machine. They need to own everything. They need to roll in as an independent contractor, presumably with some sort of a van or something, where they have all of this janitorial equipment and then basically be running running themselves as an independent contractor and there's people there are people for whom that just simply does not work and it's a cruelty to expect them to to be able to function on that level and i'm sorry that's just the truth it's just the truth um and so that's that's my big critique of it is that it's based on these pie in the sky assumptions that everybody had that everybody has about a 105 IQ when that's just that's just not the case. I would say the biggest problem anytime you get into these discussions of economics, especially around distributism or anti-capitalism or anti-libertarianism, and I'll have to throw a link to a sermon that just came out recently where the the priest heavily criticized uh, capitalism and and uh, libertarianism, how do you define these terms? And we've talked about this before. The whole idea of libertarianism could be understood as do no harm to other people. Do whatever you want as long as you're not harming anyone else. Now, most libertarians will say, fine, whatever happens between consenting adults is fine. But no, a Catholic understanding the moral ramifications of acts would say that anything that is sinful does do harm to you, to others, to society. Therefore, you're not allowed to do it. And when it comes to capitalism and, and you know, quoting Chesterton or so, whoever said the problem with capitalism is uh, there are too few capitalists, he's equating this with uh, monar uh, mon monar monopoly capitalism. That's not even capitalism anymore. It's mon monopoly uh, markets, uh, oligarchy, basically. Mm -hmm. a, if you if you apply Catholic morality, l maximum freedom as long as you're not committing sin, 
not committing sin. Yeah, yeah. that's the precision and that the whole uh, victimless crimes and whatever goes on behind closed doors beh- beh- between consenting adults. I mean, hello, where where in the hell do you think all of this drag queen story hour and all of that stuff, where where do you think that came from? What do you think the roots of all of that I- that is? It is personal sin behind closed doors and people saying, hey, whatever, whatever these sex perverts want to do, as long as I don't have to see it, just just keep it hidden, stay in the closet, whatever. Well, you know, toleration of that crap um, is what got us to where we are now with drag queen story hours. And, oh, just a point. I, I should make a blog post, a micro blog post about this. But you you keep seeing these news reports with this, oh, wonderful news, lowest, lowest number of abortions in X number of years. And you look at that and you say, well, good, less abortions, fewer abortions. This is this is a good thing. But what we need to do is we need to be adults and ask ourselves the question, why are the abortion rates going down? Is it because people have um, decided and realized that murdering innocent children is not morally acceptable? No. The reason, ladies and gentlemen, that the number of abortions are going down is because sexual perversion and sodomy is increasing parabolically amongst young people. They are not having, they're not engaging in um, reproductive sex They're not sex engaging acts. in acts which of themselves would reproduce life. Exactly. Um, you know, lesbianism, male sodomy among teenagers and, and kids in their 20s, it is absolutely parabolic. That is why abortion rates are going down. So, you know, you can't just say, huzzah, happy days are here again. Look, everything's getting better. No, actually, we've talked about this. The descent into, into ultimate, ultimate perversion, the ultimate sex, sexual perversion is look to Japan. Look to Japan. They're the, they're the leading edge of all of this. And eventually it's going to be just full on a asexuality. That's where the Japanese, that's the brave new world that they're staggering into they they maxed out on porn and then what is being reported in our culture today is that you know these people um men especially obviously because of the the physical mechanics of the whole thing men who get addicted to pornography eventually get to the point where they can't they can't perform with an actual woman and then what that turns into is that it just you just descend into complete asexuality and then you sit and you play video games all day which is about the most pathetic effeminate thing that that a man can do just descend into that fantasy escapist uber pathetic uber effeminate just impotence it is it's kind of the epitome of impotence that you're we're all just we're going to end up like a bunch of japanese gamers just sitting around that are completely asexual and nobody's having any kids and because I mean, I mean, how absolutely bizarre is that for human beings of, you know, teenagers, 20s, 30s to genuinely have not it not even have any interest in sex. I mean, that's just that's weird. Um, and that's where we're all going. But where we are now and the reason abortion rates are going down is because young people are are uh, sexually perverted. And so by definition, they're not engaging in acts that would result in pregnancy. Speaking of gamers and it being a financial Friday, 
Uh, just because you can earn $3 million plus playing video games doesn't mean it's a, it, it's recommended to go try to, to do that. You could, no. there are people who can make $25 million a year playing basketball and you could, there's about 25 of them who yeah, actually make right. those max contracts. And it's actually easier to get a max contract in the NBA than it is to be a, a millionaire game player, even though there are people who actually make a living playing video games. That sounds just absurd, but there are people who do it. Yeah. But I think the point you just made that it, that's statistically, it's far, far more likely to become a millionaire as a professional athlete than to become a millionaire as a professional gamer. And no, I mean, it's, it's statistically more common to find NBA players with max contracts. That's 25 million a year plus yeah, than to yeah. find a millionaire uh, who made their money just from gaming. Yep. It's, um, and I don't know, getting to the morality of it. It's, it's such a colossal waste of time. I just, I can't see how there's anything good, virtuous. I can't imagine our Lord, our lady, St. Joseph, the saints, the angels looking down at people sitting around playing video games and being anything other than just revolted by it. It's, it's such a waste. Um, I played, I played video games in the, in the eighties when I was a little kid. And then boy, as soon as the Commodore 64 went out of vogue, that was pretty much the end of my video game playing days. And I don't regret it ever. The, just the absolutely insane time wastage that that is. And um, I think it's, I think one of Alphonsus Liguri's sermons is on, on the sin of wasting time. I'll try to pull that up. I'll get my book of his sermons out and see if I can find it. But um, boy, yeah, the wasting of time. And it's, oh my gosh, if you have kids, I mean, I don't even have kids. And I, even I can, t- even I can witness and testify. They're only little people for a very, very short amount of time. Don't waste that precious time. When they're when they're little, they're cute, and they are sponges, and they this it's the formative years of their life, and oh, for the love of God, do not waste that time with your with your younglings. And I know I don't have any, and I shouldn't. I'm the last person to be lecturing, but Super Nerd has one or two kids, and I think that he would agree wholeheartedly with what I'm saying. Oh yeah, one of the best pieces pieces of advice, and it's very terse. Uh, that I picked up from a priest many years ago was hug your daughters and wrestle with your sons. Hug your daughters and wrestle with your sons. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And talk to them, you know, sit at table, converse with them, include them in conversation. Um, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, Some of the most impressive young people I know today are people that I, I saw it. Their parents would sit and just talk to them. They were they were involved in, in discussions of politics, discussions of absolutely everything. They were just part of the conversation from the time they could talk. Um, the whole, the whole thing of just, you know, 
shuttling your kids around just to get them out of your hair and avoiding avoiding that interaction with them. Don't do that. If you want to have psychologically normal, healthy kids who, who don't rebel against you when they hit adolescence, who don't decide that they hate your guts for no reason when they turn when they turn 13, um, one of the biggest ways that you can ensure against that is to talk to them, talk with them at the dinner table, like people used to do. I mean, the whole notion, I think a lot of people don't realize that the whole concept of adolescence and teen rebellion is a function of the basically post-World War II. Um, before that, before, before basically 1954 and the advent of rock and roll music, parents and children listen to exactly the same music. It, it, there was no difference between, you know, the genres for, for adults and the genres for children. Everyone listened to the same music. Everyone had the same culture. This whole business of splitting and turning adolescence into this co completely isolated, socially isolated thing is a function of communism communist infiltration break up the family pit children against their parents all of that stuff and so talk to your children um you know listen to the same music as your children don't consume any media uh, i would say don't consume any media apart from your children because I, I marvel at these people you know even 20 20 25 years ago when rap got really really nasty and raunchy and where you know where it is now where all they talk about is you know various and sundry forms of sodomy and, and fornication and so forth and i look at these kids who are 13 14 years old and the parents are buying them this rap music. Now, the parents wouldn't be caught dead ever listening to any of that. Why in the hell are the kids listening to music that the parents would never, ever, 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 ever listen to? Why are the parents buying them that? And it, again, it was just to keep them, keep them entertained, keep them out of your hair, give them what they want. They'll be gone in a few years. I mean, that, what a what a pathetic and and just degenerate way to be a parent. And then um, I saw a blog post. I think it was, I think it was one of Father Father David Nix's blog posts. And he went down the list and I think he listed seven mortal sins that people today just absolutely blow off. And you know, the only one that jumped out at me as one that I didn't really think about much, because I mean the other ones were all contraception masturbation, consumption of pornography, da, 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 things that are just, you know, ubiquitous out, out amongst the, the post-Christian culture. The one that jumped out at me is failure to catechize your children. I'm like, wow, yeah, that mortally sinful. You will answer. If you have failed to catechize your children, you will answer for that at your particular judgment. And that is a, that's a terrifying thing looking at how many people I mean, the, the rate of apostasy, I mean, it, it was catastrophic in the first in the first two decades after the promulgation of after Vatican II and after the promulgation of the Novus Ordo. Obviously, the apostasy rate was catastrophic. But then when you realize that each successive generation is 
equally as catastrophic. You know, it just each generation apostatizes more and apostatizes more and apostatizes more. And you realize that all of these people, especially people who are running around baptized, even baptized and, and claiming to be Catholic, who did basically did nothing, did nothing to catechize their children. No prayer at home, absolutely nothing. And, and to stop and think that, that not only is that just a failure and a dereliction of duty, but it's more mortally sinful, mortally sinful to not catechize your children. God gives you those little people and entrusts them to you. And, you know, the, 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 the meme, the old saying, you had one job, you had one job. And job number one is to get those little people baptized, confirmed, catechized, solid in the faith. That's your job. And if you can't do that, then you are truly a loser. And you'll end up, a lot of people will end up losing eternally for that failure. And on the, that's not really an economics thing, but I guess in, in the divine sense, what's the purpose of money and economics? It's not for using it in this world. Everything in this world goes away at some point. Yep. We have to we have to make use of the things and the tools we have, whether it's money, tools, means of production, uh, in order to live our vocation and give glory to God, uh, yep. to be charitable to others, um, to save our souls and help others to save souls. And ultimately, if we don't make use of what we have in this in this life, I don't care how much it you've got. If you don't make use of it to to save your soul, it was wasted. That's right. And you know, that kind of touches on the idea of stewardship and and yeah, I mean, you've got to you have to provide food, clothing, shelter for your family, obviously. You and you have to have all those things within reason. Um in order to enable the little people to be catechized and all of that and to, you know, save your own soul. It, it reminds me of the, the, the reason why there are roads and why there are public roads and public roads point to the need for some sort of government. There needs to be some sort of a government so that there are things like public roads. And, you know, you ask Americans this and, and ask them this question, most of them can't answer it. Why are there public roads and why do we need public roads? And they can't answer. And the reason that there are public roads is so that people can get to mass. That is, that is the primary reason. Secondary reason is movement of commodities, specifically food, obviously being the big one. And then third is should the need arise movement of, of troops and artillery and munitions and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but first and foremost, the reason there are public roads is so that people can get to mass. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because not getting to mass on Sunday is mortal sin. And so, yeah, we do have to have those things. And talking about stewardship on an individual level or a household level, um, a point that I wanted to make is that, um, and I used to teach this in my cattle marketing schools, profit is a cost. You have to be profitable in order to stay in business. Just perpetual break even. Break even means that you don't make any, you don't make any money, you don't lose any money. You're just, you're just treading water. Well, that's not acceptable. 
that is not acceptable at all. You have to be making money in order for your business to continue for, you know, in order for you to have excess funds to pay the bills and do what needs to be done. Um, and so the whole notion that profit is evil, no, it isn't. It's a cost. It's a fundamental cost. It's a function of um, being a good steward. And um, I suppose one could also say that it's a function in a certain sense of, I don't know if you would, if you could work justice into that somehow, but um, it, it, it's a cost. You have to be profitable. And so what the only system that um, that doesn't deride profit as some as some horrible intrinsic evil is capitalism in some form, you know. Um, but again, you've got the the thing that said about capitalism is that um, they're always talking about unrestrained capitalism, unrestrained capitalism, unrestrained capitalism. Well, that's never existed ever in human history. Not, not for one nanosecond has there ever been such a thing as unrestrained capitalism. Um, and it's people, you can't, you can't mistake, you can't look at people like John Corzine and these people who are just looting things right and left and, and these bankster oligarchs and, and attribute and classify that as, as capitalism. It's not capitalism. It's, it's criminality. It's theft. So I think, and this is another one of the heirs of Russia that have crept in into the into the vocabulary, into the into the zeitgeist over the last hundred years, is just portraying profit as intrinsically bad and intrinsically evil, which which it's no such thing. It's it's a moral responsibility to be profitable, and um, also lumping criminal oligarchs in with capitalists it, it nothing could be further from the truth so i hope that circles back around and and answers that that question about where i stand on capitalism and if it doesn't the email address for the podcast is podcast at barnhart.biz um we've hit all all the bullet points for this one and i even uh, grabbed one off off of twitter while, while we were going here nice um, so yeah, if you have any questions, I'm, I, by no means is this going to be considered exhaustive. And uh, if you have, if you want to take send issue, in questions, send in questions so we can use the cool theme music again. <laughs> That's you, all we want. <laughs> if you want to take issue with me, pretty much disregarding distributors because they don't define economic terms uh, ever, much less accurately. Um, podcast at barnhart.biz masses at Anne's benef for Anne's benefactors uh, at least one mass every single day and once a week uh, a, one, a requiem mass for everybody who died the previous week um, even though Anne's not on Twitter uh, some of you may have seen that I posted about my friend Eric he is still alive still with us so he is still metaphysically unqualified for that requiem mass but he is very very close to the end um, please pray for him as well and please pray for all the priests as well who are offering these masses they have big giant targets on their their backs and uh, Satan would love nothing more than to take down priests because usually if you can take down a priest you're taking a few hundred people with them um, yeah. The Barnhart Podcast, you know, um, it, it's a production of Super Nerd Media. I'll skip my value for value until there's some way to deliver value back. Um, PayPal's dead and the mailbox is empty. So let's just go to um, Matthew 1720. <laughs> Matthew 1720 intention is fasting twice a week in whatever way that you can. And obviously pray, rosary, whatever, dedicated to the fact that or the intention that 
Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole thing be nullified, that that Pope Benedict be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living Pope since April of 2005, that Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision, and that Pope Ratzinger repent of whatever he might need to repent of, and likewise die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific that he achieved the beatific vision. Anne's connection just dropped out, but I think I can say at this point, until next time, I am Super Nerd, and on behalf of Anne, she's Anne. Thanks, guys. See you later.